Good morning. We are continuing our sermon series, walking through the first half of Exodus. We only have a few weeks left. And last week, we finished chapter 12, and we spent a good bit of time looking at uh, the Passover again and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And we talked a lot about the purpose of our salvation. What does it mean that we are saved? How does that have bearing on our life today? And this morning, we're going to start chapter 13, and we're going to talk about something that God makes really clear in this section. And it's this. It's, it's that we are not our own. That Christ has claimed us, his people, as his own. And because of that, the way that we live needs to look different because of that. So when I was in high school, um, I did what a lot of high school students do that grew up in the church, that even that ours do. I went on a mission trip. Um, our, our youth group had decided to go to Ukraine, where we essentially uh, put on a vacation Bible school for um, a bunch of underprivileged kids in Ukraine for two weeks. And, and so we did this whole thing, sent support letters, had teammates. I've talked about this trip before in a different uh, way. But I'm going to start, before we even get on the trip, some bad stuff happened. <clears throat> the only reason I was real well, not the only reason, sorry. One of the biggest reasons I was excited for this trip was that all of my boys were going on the trip, right? All of my friends were going. I was super excited about them going. We had talked about it. We had the meetings. We had cut up, and we had joked around in all the places we knew we were going to, you know, all the things. But I think because we were going to Ukraine for so long, two weeks, and it may have been because of 9-11 precautions, I, I don't really know. We had to get visas to go, temporary visas. And I'll never forget, the week of the trip comes, and about half of our team's visas had not come in. Mine had come in. I was good to go. But our youth pastor reached out to the team and let them know that um, they were going to come in any day, not to worry about it. Each day, he's, kinda, he's sending out text messages or calling. I don't remember if we were texting. I don't think we were texting at that point. But anyway, they never came. The day shows up. Our youth pastor calls. Uh, I think we actually had a phone tree. Oh, y'all remember those phone trees? You called one person. They called two people. They called people. That was, sorry, anyone under 30 does not understand that at all. Um, but I think that's what he did. Still come to the airport. The visas hopefully will come. Get to the airport. Visas aren't there. They talk to the airline. Parents show up. They're fighting. They would not let these kids get on the plane. And so we left. I think we're supposed to take 30 kids on this trip. I think we left 16 of them at the airport. Every single one of my friends stuck at the airport. And I'm looking around at my options, and they're slim, right? I'm like, who am I going to hang out with on this trip? I don't know this, like, the weird guy's a little older. No, I'm sorry. You know how kids do stuff like that. We would never do that as adults. Um, there's one kid, Shelby, right, who I wasn't friends with, but who was friends with all of my friends, right? He was a friend of a friend. And I looked at him, and I was like, you're mine. I was like, you're mine. It's like the only time I feel like in my life that I was like, you're going to be my friend and you have no choice in this matter. Like there's no one else on this trip. We're going to room together. We're going to sit next to each other on the airport. We're going to do a vacation Bible study for these kids together. Like we are going, or vacation Bible school, we are going to be friends on this trip because we don't got anyone else. And he was like, um, okay. <laughs> I literally claimed him, Right. And uh, he was in, and it was funny. We, we spent that whole trip together, and, and, you know, we got really close, and then it was nice because he was a friend of a friend, but now all of us were friends after the trip. It was really cool. 
Um, but it really, it was interesting. It was the first time in my life that I ever really remember being like this person. The resounding message that we see in chapter 13 is this. God looks at Israel and he says, mine. Over and over, this is what we see. God tells Israel that their lives, their families, their work, their deeds, good and bad, they're, they're his. He claimed them as a people to be his. And it comes out in a bunch of different ways as we go through this passage, but that's the consistent message. And the same is true of us today. We are also not our own. Christ has claimed every single one of us that profess faith in him. And, and one thing that we do well as Christians, especially in 2020 and evangelical culture, one thing that we do well is this. We're good at talking about how God is ours. Have you ever thought about that? We talk often about how Jesus is our savior. We talk often about how uh, he has done these things for us. We even talk about our experience as we receive his grace and his love. If you think about it, that language that we're using is God is ours. And that's true. God is a personal God. He has given himself to us so that we can claim him. So don't mistake me. But I do worry that we often talk so much about how God is ours that we lose the idea that we are God's. It's something that I think is really important for us not to lose sight of. Yes, God is ours, but we are his. Those things, his grace, his mercy, even his relationship is something that he has chosen to give us. They are not ours by right. We are his. He created us. He sustained us in our mother's womb, and he, he sustains us now. This morning, I want us to spend time focusing on how we are gods. And, and this is a hard concept for us as Westerners and as Christians in, in America in 2020 because we love to look at our lives like it's our own, right? Every single one of us. One time someone told me that um, everyone is walking around as if they are all in their own private movies and they're their own main character, right? That's often how we view ourselves. We think we're the protagonist of a story that we are creating day in and day out. So we operate in the world often as individuals experiencing life, what we can get out of life, autonomous. How does this situation affect me? How, how is this going to make me either feel better, have fun, be good, feel good. We are individually and inward focused a lot. But the Bible tells us a different story, and this is why it's important for us to reframe the way we view this idea. It tells us that we aren't the movie star of our own private movie. We aren't the protagonist in the story that we are writing. No, the Bible tells us the main character of this story is God. He's the creator, sustainer, and upholder of all things. He's all-powerful and all-knowing and all-present. And yes, we do come into this. We are a part of that story. But the Bible doesn't start with us, right? It starts with God creating all things. His glory and power, his majesty, that's the point and object of the biblical story. But we're not, he's the point of the thing, we're not. And this is the pattern that we see throughout. We see it in Genesis. We've seen it time and time again in Exodus. The minor prophets spoke of it. Jesus came to fulfill and embody this idea. The all-powerful God has chosen a people, has claimed them. 
And I do, I, I, it's hard for me. When I actually break it down in this way, it is hard for me because I want it to be me, right? I want my desires. I want my own autonomy. I want to be the point of my own life, in my own flourishing, happiness, fulfillment. I chase these things. Often we feel like we deserve those things. But what are we doing when we do that? When we put ourselves as the object, as the point of the thing, we're putting ourselves in the place that only God can inhabit. Because, and this is actually funny, because you would be a terrible God. And so would I, right? I'd be a horrific one. But we live so often as if we are the gods of our own lives. And if we allowed that, actually, if God allowed that to actually play out, things would go very terribly. So it's actually a gift that we are God's. And he does claim us. And so he looks at me and he looks at you and he says that we are his. And because this is true, it's going to change the way we live. That's kind of our whole point this morning. And so um, this morning we're going to look at two ways that this is going to change things for us. All right. First, it means that we're going to live lives marked by submission to God. Live lives marked by submission. The second, we're going to live lives marked or in light of God's redemption. So submission and redemption are the outworking of this idea that God claims us, that it starts with God and not with us. And so chapter 13 starts with a very interesting line. It says this, the Lord said to Moses, consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both a man and beast is mine. Now that is strong language. A few weeks ago, we introduced a dynamic in the relationship between God and Israel. It was the idea that every firstborn in the house of Israel belonged to God. This was an implicit and inherent part of the covenant that God made with Israel. And that, that we use that to talk about how that reframes the Abraham and Isaac story, right? Abraham knew instinctively that his son Isaac was God's and he would do whatever God told him to do. But when God rescues Israel and brings them out of Egypt... He makes explicit what had previously been implicit. And this is exactly what we see in 13. God calls Israel to consecrate him every firstborn. But not only that, he says, what does he say here? They are mine. Not just consecrate them to me, but they are mine. God really flexes his claim here. And as we've discussed many times in the past months, the firstborn position, that's the privileged position in the family, right? So all the hopes and dreams for the family and its reputation rides on that person. And by God claiming them, God is saying this, your hopes, your dreams, your reputation, your family name and identity, all of it, they're in my hands. They're mine. And this shows the grand interplay that we see throughout scripture between God and man it actually required something from the Israelites. Yes, at the end it says that they are his, but the first part instructs them to consecrate the baby to them. They had to willingly submit their firstborn to God. This was a command. And again, we see this interplay of God's sovereignty who holds all things, already claims the children, and the responsibility of man, our agency to submit our will and our lives to him. Both those things are intention, even here in this verse. And verse 8 says this, you shall tell your son on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt, and it shall be to you as a sign on your hand, as a memorial between your eyes, 
that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand, the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this statute at its appointed time from year to year. So the, the rest of these verses that we just read, we see God call Israel to submit to him in all these different ways. So first, he, he, in verse 3, he tells them to remember the day that they were saved from slavery with his strong hand. He tells them not to eat of the unleavened bread that had been defiled by yeast that was supposed to symbolize the purity of their heart. He reinstituted the feast of the unleavened bread, eh, reminding them to sweep out that leaven, symbolizing his complete expulsion of Egypt from Israel. Remember we talked about last week, God wanted Israel out of Egypt, but also wanted Egypt out of Israel, Right? And he commands them to remember what he did for them, to pass it down for generations so that the nations would know what he did. All of these things are God commanding Israel and Israel willfully submitting to God. But here's the deal. They didn't have to do it. But what I find fascinating is that it wasn't even a question for them. God instituted these memorials, these feasts, the Passover, their firstborn son, And they did it. It was just who they were. Submission to what God called them to do was a part of who, it was their identity. It was part of their culture. They had such confidence in God that submitting everything to him was simply what it meant to be an Israelite. Now, they sinned and they struggled and turned on God in a million other ways in Scripture. This isn't some kind of pro-ancient Israel uh, sermon this morning, I promise. But this area, submission to God, was not one of their issues. But we struggle with it. I think it's one of ours. And I think it goes back to what we talked about just a second ago. We don't like to submit to anyone. We like to think that it's our story, our will, and our way that will bring us fulfillment. I think that's the difference. If I have my autonomy, I'll be okay. If I can do what I want, I'll be happy. If I just get this one thing, I'll be fulfilled. But what Scripture has shown us over and over and over again, that if we do that, We'll never be satisfied. It's actually in submission to God and his will and his way that we find true flourishing, satisfaction, and fulfillment. I think the question before us this morning is, do you submit your heart and your lives to God? Your choices and your actions and your relationships. Do you live in such a way that you've submitted them to the God of the universe? And this is easy when it's looked at from a 10,000-foot view. But when we get more granular, it gets tougher. Submitting our will to God means that we submit every aspect to him. So students, do you submit your time and your energy and your effort at school to God? Or do you do just enough to get by? Parents, are you willing to submit your children to God, trusting that he has the best for them and will hold them in his hands? And that you can't control every aspect of their lives. Have you allowed yourself to submit your children to him? What about your finances? When you plan your year out this year, as we look into a new year, when you're thinking about trips to take or your big expenditures for the year, how often do you think first about submitting to God's will with your finances before you even plan for, to spend one dime? What about the state of the world, Right? There's so much anxiety right now coming out of this pandemic, following an election, about what the world is going to look like in years to come. We, we all feel anxious in that. 
There's a lot of process. And we're going to try to process some of this as a church together this year. And a lot of our anxiety comes because we feel out of control, right? We worry that the world won't go back to normal, that things will be changed irreparably. We don't know what it's going to look like, what it will mean for us. Our anxiety about the state of the world, though, is often a mask covering an underlying sense of feeling out of control, though, right? That's really what it is. We feel out of control, and thus it makes us anxious. But aligning our will with God will bring an ease to that anxiety. Because God wants us even to submit our anxiety to him, our feeling of out of control, because he can handle it. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. I really believe that the Christian journey in many ways is learning to submit our hearts and lives to the will and way of God. I do want to mention one last thing. We don't submit to God out of duty or just out of duty. And he doesn't ask us to submit to him because he wants a bunch of minions, right? God wants us to submit our wills to him because it's the best for us to do so. And it's best for the world to do so. And I'm not talking in a prosperity gospel way. You're not going to get rich or uh, all your anxieties will go away or or, or that life is going to be super easy when you submit your will to God. But I will say this. In submission to God, we find what we're looking for, peace and true shalom. And when we align our will with them, it does bring about flourishing hope and peace and love, these things in our hearts that we are looking for. And we are constantly looking to other things for. So this morning, my hope is you look at your heart and where are you withholding yourself from him? Where's that place you need to be taken to to submit your heart and your will to God? Because he wants to meet you there. And he will meet you there. And brings us to our second point. So we've seen that God has laid claim to us. And because of that, we must live lives of submission to him. And now we're going to see it calls us to live lives in light of redemption, of his redemption. So, like we said earlier, that, that implicit understanding between God and Israel was made explicit in these verses. All the firstborns of Israel were God. And because of this, that means that there was a price, a proverbial, or you could even say symbolic price, on every firstborn head of every family in Israel. And the only way to redeem them back from God for temporary care again was sacrifice. Verse 13 says this, every firstborn of man among your sons, you shall redeem. And when the time comes, your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and of the animals. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. You see, the sacrifice is the price for the sons that each father was supposed to redeem in the household. So this is symbolic of their own children, right? Uh, uh, was Of buying back their own children from God was symbolic to remember that God bought back his own children, Israel, right? He called them all of Israel's firstborn sons from Egypt. So God paid a price to redeem Israel. And one thing that's been so cool about studying Exodus, if you think about it this way, we have built a robust theology of salvation together. It's actually really cool. The plagues taught us about sin and judgment, right? About that aspect of of salvation. Um, 
We see a lot about election in these verses that God chose to rescue Israel because they were his people. He chose them to be his people. It taught us about penal substitutionary atonement. Israel were saved by the blood of a lamb that stood, substituted, took their place. It taught us about propitiation, the idea that the blood of the lamb turned away the wrath of God. Teaches us about community and the communion of saints and the command to remember the Passover and the feast of the unleavened bread. Teaches us about sanctification, the leaven that's supposed to be swept out of the house. That was the yeast in their hearts that symbolized sin, right? We've built this beautiful, robust theology of salvation. And then we come to this passage and it teaches us this other really, really beautiful aspect. Redemption. We come almost culminating into this theology of redemption. And it's this idea that God, his claim on us was something that was not loose, right? It's not like it was like a little bow that was tied over us or, or, or a box with a lid that's kind of coming off a little bit. No, the, the, the God's claim over us is airtight. We are his no matter what. And we know this is true because of a theology of redemption. To redeem something is to buy it back. And we have a God who through the exodus and then today, who has proven himself that no price is too high for him to buy his people back. Israel was in a helpless place in Egypt. They had been enslaved for 400 years with no hope of escape. It's not like they were, uh, had a, revolutionary, a revolution building, right? They're no hope. The only way for them to be saved was for a stronger party to intervene. And this is what God did. He intervened on their behalf. And there was a steep price. Judgment came for every household in Israel and Egypt. And unless there was a dead lamb with its blood on the door, there was a dead son. That was the redemption price to get Israel out of Egypt. That is steep. But it's a reminder that there's a redemption price on my head and on yours. Our sin puts us in a place that's helpless. We have no hope of salvation. The only way that we would be saved was for a stronger party to intervene on our behalf. There's this interaction between Abraham and God that's helpful for us as we think of this idea of redemption that I want to bring to our attention. It's one that we've talked about from here maybe once or twice But in Genesis 12, God and Abraham formed a covenant. They formalized their relationship, and he promised Abraham that he would make his name great and that he would give him a people and a place, a land, right? He said, I'll bless you so that you can be a blessing. But in Genesis 15, we see this relationship formalized through sacrifice. And in the ancient Near East, when, when when two parties made a covenant, an agreement together, what they did was they sacrificed an animal, and they put its remains on the ground, and they walked through it together. And they said symbolically, it's like a really intense way to shake hands, right? And what they're saying is, if I will uphold my end of the covenant and, uh, by penalty of death, and you will uphold your end of the covenant by penalty of death, and we both walk through this dead animal to symbolize this. But in Genesis 15, we see this play out. God reaffirms his covenant with Abraham. He promises salvation from judgment, promises him land, all these things he had just promised him 12, uh, three chapters before. 
And he instructs Abraham to make the animal sacrifices, right? And, and Abraham makes his, the sacrifices, and the animal's remains are on the ground. Abraham knows what's coming next. We're going to formalize this covenant. This is how it's always been done. We're going to uphold both ends of our covenant, and it's on penalty of death. I know this. I'm ready. Got the animals. They're down. And then God does this. He puts them to sleep. He says, go to sleep. He makes him immobile. He doesn't allow him to be able to walk through and formalize the covenant. And while he's asleep, something shocking happens. Verse 17 says, when the sun had gone down, it was dark. Behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed beneath these pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. You see, the smoking fire pot and the flaming torch both represent God. God was walking through the animal remains for himself, and he said, I will uphold my end of the covenant, even if it kills me. And I'm going to also walk through the animals on your behalf. And if you don't uphold the end of the covenant, it's not your life that will be forfeit, it's mine. So God told Abraham, I will uphold mine of the covenant, and I will uphold yours. He was telling him, you have a price on your head. You need redemption. You are not going to be uphold, able to uphold the end of your covenant. You're not going to be able to uphold your end. But I'll do it for you, even if it kills me. Even if it kills me. And what we know, what we know is that it did. Is that we didn't uphold the end of our covenant. That God did uphold his end, and he upholded ours. And he did pay the price. He paid our price. I will redeem you and your people even if it kills me. That was God's message to Abraham. B.B. Warfield says this. There's no one of the titles of Christ which is more precious to our hearts than Redeemer. It gives expression not merely to our sense that we have received salvation from him but also to our appreciation of what it cost him to procure that salvation. It is the name specifically of the Christ of the cross. So whenever we pronounce it, the cross is placarded before our eyes and our hearts are filled with loving remembrance. Not only that Christ has given us salvation, but that he paid a mighty price for it. Christ didn't just save us by snapping his fingers. No, he paid a price for it. Christ upheld our end of the covenant when he went willingly to the cross and took our sins on his back, my sin and yours, and he died. Think about this. God paid our price by sacrificing his firstborn son. He gave him up so that we could be saved. So why do you think as you're sitting here, as I was sitting here this week, I was thinking to myself, why do I think that submitting, Israel submitting their children to God was so easy for them? Why was it such an inherent part of who they were? And it's because they intimately knew what God had done for them in Egypt. They knew it. They remembered it. They practiced it. They had a Passover feast. Some of them, it had just happened for them. God wants us to consecrate our children to him. Well, he just rescued us from 400 years of slavery. So yeah, I'll submit my children to him. Why would I not? They knew how helpless they were and how strong God was. 
They knew what God had done for them, and they would follow him no matter what. And the same should be true for us, and it's not. We let it slip from our grasp so easy. And this is why it's so important to hold a theology of redemption close. It reminds us that God's claim to us, yes, is a gift, but it was bought with such a high price. Our lives have been purchased, and not against our will, but because we willingly submit to him. Because we know how sinful we are. We know how dark our hearts are. We know the wrong things we've done, some even egregious. And we know that the price in our heads is too big to overcome, and yet Christ paid it for us. So this is my encouragement for you. Hold tight to the theology of redemption. Hold tight to it. Because it's there that we are reminded of the goodness of God. It's there that we're reminded of his love for us. It's there when we are reminded that he paid a high price for us that it's easier for us to follow him. Fidelity to the will and way of God is directly tied to how much we understand our own need for and our own redemption. Fidelity to the will and way of God is directly tied to how much we understand our need for redemption. So the more we realize that steep price, the more we'll submit and surrender every aspect of our lives to him. Remember that price and let it shape the way you live. One one thing that's interesting about um, that trip with my buddy, um, he reintroduced me to like, this was like early 2000s um, country, right? Like Red Dirt Road heads out there, you know, uh, that kind of era. I didn't really like that music. It was the only music he had on his CD player. We had a splitter. So we were both listening to it. That was sweet. Started talking like each other. That happens, you know. One thing that, uh, the reason I say all this is because when you claim someone, right? And you know this through marriage, through your family, through your friends. You start to live like one another, right? You start to rub off on each other a little bit. You start to act like one another. And I truly believe the more that we understand that we are not our own, that Christ has claimed us, that we are his, the more we'll start to live like him. We'll start to be like him. Living in light of our redemption, living in submission to him, won't be as difficult because it's just who we are. Because he has claimed us. So as we go into this new year, um, you know, resolutions or not, my hope for us is this. Let us not always look at um, us and what we get from God, but that he has claimed us as his own. That God is not ours, but we are his. And that is actually a freeing and beautiful and a gift to us. So remember that this morning. Amen.